good morning. And welcome to Calvary this morning, whether you're joining us online or you're here in the building with us. It's so great to be with you all this morning, however, and whatever that looks like. My name is Jeremiah, and I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary, in case you didn't know that. I'm, the, I'm actually the pastor of young adults. Shout out to those young adults who I know. I, what's up, guys? Good to see you. Yeah, it's, it's great to be with you all this morning as we continue our service, or our series, rather, our service two, our series where we're talking about the King, and that is King Jesus. And we're taking a look at Jesus through the lens of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, gospel being a word that is used, it's basically describing the message of the King. It's actually not just a biblical word, right? It's a word in those times that really meant when there's a new King, he has a message, He has words that this kingdom is going to kind of exemplify, right? That's what a gospel is. We're looking at the gospel as Matthew is telling it. We're hearing about how Jesus is a king, and he has a gospel. He has a message. Now, I have the not daunting at all task of talking about the entire Sermon on the Mount. Now, for those of you who have read the Sermon on the Mount, you know that there's a lot there. We could probably spend literal years talking about it. For those of you who haven't read the Sermon on the Mount, it's okay, I understand. Anything you've probably heard from Christianity comes from this sermon. There is so much that comes out of it, okay? And so it might be that I forget what I'm going to talk about today, and I just start reading the Sermon on the Mount, just so you all know, because it's really good. My hope this morning, actually, though, is to add some um, context around it. I will summarize it to, to some degree But sermons, especially when it comes to sermons like this, are so much more meaningful in the moment, right? You need some sort of kind of building of context around it. And so that's kind of what my hope is this morning as we take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we're going to take a look at three ideas that we see. We're going to see authority. We're going to see authenticity. And we're also going to see an idea of action that comes across. And I would encourage you, um, as I would always encourage you, and as young adults have heard me say, read your Bible and read this sermon uh, this week. Maybe take a look at uh, this, this sermon again that I'm preaching alongside of it as you go through the text, because it really is important. We, found, we find most of our growth from when we engage the Bible as individuals, and then together in groups and things like that, right? Small groups and stuff like that. That's really where you find life from it. So I would encourage you to do that. I'm not going to read the whole thing, like I said, unless I forget. All right, three ideas. Here we go. The first idea that I want to get across is authority. Now, I'm going to do something right now. I think it's helpful. Uh, Hopefully, you will find it helpful too. Really what I'm trying to do is to help us keep in mind or bear in mind the physical nature of what Jesus is doing. The physical nature, right? It's a sermon on a mountain. I think sometimes we, just, we, we would skip over that. In fact, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, if you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, you probably will skip over verse 1, where it says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and like, yada, yada, yada. Tell me the words that I'm supposed to do. Right? Tell me the stuff I'm supposed to do. That's how we engage, I would imagine, most of Scripture, because it does have great things for us to do. But I think this is what's very interesting. And so if you will, this is my mountain. I'm going to sit down. 
Because I think it's important for us to see that Jesus gets there and he sits down on a mountain. Now, no shame if you have no idea what I'm talking about. But who in the Old Testament went up a mountain? I heard it. Moses. If at home you said that out loud, I didn't hear it, but I'm really glad that you said it. Moses. We should think Moses. And this is what happened when Moses went up a mountain. He got 10 commandments. What is the first thing that Jesus does after he sits down? He starts to say, blessed be those. He gives a kind of 10 commandments. Now you might say, well, Jeremiah, he only gives nine beatitudes. And I would say, good point. There's more than 10 commandments. So anyway, right? We can, but we need to be thinking about what or who we need to be thinking about Moses. As the people are watching that, that should be an idea that's coming across. Moses went up a mountain. But this is what's very interesting to me. When Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, he was talking to God. And who gave the commandments? God gave the commandments to Moses. How is this different? Jesus goes up a mountain, and who gives the commandments? Jesus. To who? The disciples, the people listening. So we should think Moses, but I think there's more authority going on here. Jesus is putting himself in the role, not of Moses exactly, but in this case, of God. He's handing out those, those things, right? Those statements of being. In fact, once again, we could spend years in this sermon. Jesus begins by suggesting that we be something. I wonder if most of us in, uh, in our walk in this Christian faith, right, exploring whatever it is, I wonder if most of us think that it's a doing thing, right? So if I'm not doing this, then I'm not a good Christian. And I think Jesus is actually saying in those statements, no, it's actually a being thing. You don't just do kindness. You are kind. And the things you do grow out of what you are. And so kind of step one that a lot of us will do is we'll try, you know, we'll try and do nice things. I'm not saying we shouldn't do nice things. I'm just saying that I don't think that's quite what Jesus is getting across in this sermon from the beginning. It's, it's not just about what you're doing. It's about a level of being. And so that's where the second idea comes in. So, right, Jesus is putting himself in a place of authority. He's even like, if you can, right, he's sitting on a mountain. What are they doing? They're looking up to Jesus, right? There is this physicality of actually looking up. And who is up in their minds, right? Where are the heavens? They're up. And what are the heavens is where God is, right? So Jesus is really directing their attention in that way just by sitting on a mountain, okay? So the second idea that Jesus really spends most of his sermon talking about, right, is authenticity. And um, young adults have heard me say this a lot. You will hear me say this probably if we hang out for any amount of time, but I tend to think that the Bible is more spaghetti than it is spreadsheets. Now, I love spreadsheets. I love spreadsheets. And when a formula that I've designed works in a spreadsheet, tell me a better feeling. To those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm really sorry, let's hang out. Because it's incredible, right? But frustratingly, I think the Bible and life as a Christian is more spaghetti than it is spreadsheets. 
And we will often get mad when the formulas don't work. And I would say, I understand that, I'm with you. I think it's more spaghetti. And here's what I mean. There are strands or themes that run throughout it, right? Can we exactly pinpoint exact things to do? Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But there are strands that we should see and hear running through it. Strands like this idea of we should be thinking about Moses, right? So Jesus, when he's talking about authenticity in his sermon, is weaving together two strands. The first is this idea that living a life of the kingdom, right? He's the king. Living a life in the kingdom has to be inside out. And so um, I'm going to kind of pull out a verse that I think in particular really demonstrates this idea. So it's chapter 5, verse 13. And uh, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He's trying to get across this idea like, you can look like salt all you want, but if you don't make this food more flavorful, then were you really salt? No one uses that salt. It's not good salt. In fact, interestingly, I cook a lot. Salt does this really interesting thing. Um, Salt actually generally bonds to water, so the water disappears and you get the flavor, right? So when you salt your vegetables, they taste more carroty, right? So you put salt on your carrots because, obviously, right, when you're cooking them. And now they taste more like carrots. And you know you've put too much salt when all you can taste is the salt, right? But the idea is that salt really, it bonds to water. It, it kind of pulls out the flavor of it, right? If salt's not doing that, it's no good. Jesus is trying to get across this idea that the inside has to match the outside. And he uses imagery like um, if you plant uh, the seed of an, well, I don't think he uses apple tree, right? He uses fig tree, right? Basically, the seed is going to produce the tree. It doesn't, if you plant a fig tree seed, you're going to get a fig tree. That's just how it's supposed to be, right? The inside's got to match the outside. He's talking about this idea of like you're going to get, you know, you get what you give, Right? These kinds of like consistency, matching, right? The inside has to match the outside. Then he does something that's pretty normal. Uh, however, it could feel a certain type of way to us. Um, he, around verse 20, he, um, he begins actually by saying, I, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, once again, for those of you who don't really know what Pharisees are, imagine like these people have the Bible, the first five books memorized. If you've tried to read Genesis, you understand how incredible these humans are. And Genesis is an easy one. When you get to Leviticus, sheesh, most people are like, yeah, I'm about the New Testament. Let me, let me get to the back half of this. Where are the stories at? Right? It's a lot of laws. They had it memorized. And Jesus is saying, it's actually complimenting the Pharisees. If you're not as righteous as them, you don't get in the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus does something after that, after verse 20. He begins to give insides to the exterior laws. And this is what I mean. He says, you've heard it said, but I say. So he says something like, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. 
So the Pharisees are like, well, I didn't murder anybody. And Jesus says, okay, if you're angry with your brother and you're at the altar trying to tell God how much you love him, stop what you're doing, go apologize to your brother, and then come back. Jesus is saying there's an interior aspect to these laws. You can't get in the kingdom unless you've done the outside stuff like the Pharisees, but he says, but even they, even they have to consider the interior, the inside nature of this. It's like they're like hollow shells, right? We're walking around and we're hollow shells. It's the inside that produces the outside. But I would imagine that most of us, myself included, right? So I say most of us, and I really, y'all, I mean us. We will try and maneuver our existence on the outside, especially in a place like a church where it feels like we're, um, maybe we kind of walk in and we've heard stories or maybe we've actually experienced them, right? We haven't just heard them, but um, it feels like we're not allowed to have mistakes because the church is where you come to get perfect. And I don't disagree with that um, in the sense that the church is where you come to, to heal, right? But um, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll just put stuff on the outside, right? We'll kind of bandage it over, act like it isn't there. Jesus is really saying, yeah, it's not that. It's partly that, but it's not just that. And so at the end of this section where Jesus is like giving insides, right? He's kind of filling in the laws. And verse 48, he says this. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I, when reading that, I was like, perfect? That's like, what does that mean? What's going on there? So in the Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was written in, in the Greek, um, the word perfect actually has an implication of like um, complete. We'll tend to think like, oh, well, you know, you would actually, we would even say this. We would say nobody's perfect. And what we mean is that everyone makes mistakes. What I think this idea of perfect really is, is um, it's incomplete. So actually, I agree. Nobody's perfect. We're all incomplete. We're all incomplete. Think less about your mistakes, though, right? How are we incomplete? Well, it's probably because our insides need to be filled in. You need to be complete, like your heavenly Father is full or complete. Then Jesus, right, he puts in context for these people who are listening. He says, this is what you all need to understand. So in chapter 6, he kind of begins to talk about these people he calls hypocrites. Well, the word hypocrite is from the Greek. It just means actor, right? So actors, you're just acting. They look on the outside like they're supposed to, right? And you probably feel bad when you're around these people, but they do not have the insides that I've been hinting at or talking about, right? Jesus is saying they don't have that. And the, the analogy that I think of uh, we actually talked about it in students, in planning, you know, we're talking to students about this, is um, hollow bunnies at Easter. Easter morning, you got your suit on. This is me, right? Got my suit on, got an Easter basket, got a hollow bunny. I know it was labeled, but you know that, especially when you're younger, kids don't read. Grown people don't read, right? I didn't read that it was a hollow bunny. I go in, I bite into it, 
and I taste chocolate air, and now I'm covered with all of these like shards of chocolate that have stained my suit, and I'm worried that if anyone gets too close to me, now this is gonna be a really awkward explanation, like, oh, what's that? Well, it's the chocolate from the hollow, the hollow bunny I was eating. Hollow bunnies, right? They have the appearance of everything you'd want, but they're empty on the inside. That's what these actors are like. That's what idols are. They're hollow bunnies. And this is what happens. Jesus says, those people who are acting, they will get their reward. They will get the idols that they're chasing. But I think what also is important to notice is that they will become more like the idols they're chasing. Not only did they get the, the wood statue, they become more like the wood statue. Their insides are less and less what they're supposed to be. And they'll just try and cover it up and appear perfect. But it's almost like they're scraping out the, the chocolate on the inside to put it on the outside, right? A, a cut comes and it's like they scrape it out and they put it on the outside because you need to appear that way. But this is what I want us to, to understand and wrestle with. People who choose God, not only do they get God, but they become more like him. Which is what we in church would say. We need to be more like Jesus, right? You have to choose God to do that. You have to choose God to do that. And so then this is when Jesus takes, so strand one, inside out, right? Here's a picture. It's these actors. Jesus kind of transitions, and he begins to talk about the second strand of authenticity, right? The idea being that it's upside down. So strand two is this idea of upside down. Because the question is this, okay, well, my insides need to be fixed. Well, we, I think, can attest to this. Most people are like, oh, yeah, you need to find inner peace or whatever, right? You need to find that... Where do you get it? Well, you just find it inside. Do you? Is that really what happens? Jesus, I think, is saying, no, that's not what happens. You are filled, and you are filled in this way. So in chapter 6, verse 19 to 20, I think I have those. He, has, he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, down here, where moths and vermin destroy but, and where thieves break in. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is directing them up because where is heaven in their mind? Where would most of us actually probably say heaven is like growing up? It's up, right? Heaven's in the sky. That comes from biblical times, this idea that the heavens are up here. But heaven is really just where God is, right? It's the place where God is king. So Jesus is saying, hey, don't store up stuff down here store up stuff up here, right? You need to live above. You need to live above. And then he uses analogies that are giving us this idea of aboveness. He says, don't look at somebody else's plank in their eye. If you have a speck in yours or speck in their eye, when you have a plank, I forget exactly what the order is, right? But basically Jesus is like, hey, if your eye's blocked, don't tell somebody else that their eye's blocked. You can't see what are you doing? That's not how it works. Because where does light pour in? He says in his sermon, it pours in from the eyes. It pours in from above. Where are your eyes? They're up here. Light comes in from above. How are you filled? From above. 
If that's blocked, how are you going to look at somebody else and say that? You literally cannot see them. It's blocked. He talks about the idea of building a city on a hill. It can't be hidden, right? Because it's in the light. Because it's up. He is directing our attention to up. So what really needs to happen? The up needs to come down. In fact, in chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, a prayer some of us might be familiar with, you pray, your kingdom come. Right? You're, you're asking the up to come down. That's what you're asking for. And Jesus is saying, that needs to happen. You need to have your mind set on things above. You need to have basically built up here while you're here. If you don't do that, you're never going to get filled in. If you don't put your stuff where God is, you're never going to get filled in. You're going to show up and you're going to think, hey, I just need to do these things. No. No. Because inevitably what's going to happen, and I say this and I hope my, my tone is, because I'm going to do stuff and then eventually the stuff I did isn't going to make the difference I thought it would. And I'm going to stop doing it. I'm just going to stop. And I wonder how many of us would, would struggle with that, right? We, we would just stop. And hope maybe one day we can figure it out. So, Jesus is weaving together these ideas in authenticity, right? Two strands, put them together. But then, Jesus ends his sermon, and he moves in the direction of talking about action. So, I'm actually going to read from Matthew 7, um, this 24 to 27. You might have heard this before. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, right, does them. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, Many of us, I would imagine, think that that's a story of foundations, right? You build on a firm foundation. Actually, there's hymns that are written about that. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I grew up singing hymns. So like, that's like, oh, okay, that's what he's talking about. I'm not going to disagree with that. However, I do want to paint a picture that I think will add some fullness here, right? So here we go. I have a picture that I want you guys to take a look at. Um, this is, so it's actually not pixelated. That's just water pouring over the side of the cliff. Um, the, the, the situation in uh, where this Bible takes place, it's a very dry climate. And so what happens when it rains is that the water doesn't have time to soak in, so it just kind of runs. And what it does, as you can see, is it creates these canyons, right? At the top of the canyon would be rock. And at the bottom of the canyon, because water is pouring in and pouring in and pouring in, it would be sand. The word for rock in Matthew chapter 7 has tones of a cliff. What I believe Jesus is saying is not just to build on rock, but it's to build up here. Why? Because that's where God is. And the rains are coming 
you would never build your house in the canyon. Why would you do that? You know that rains come and flood. Don't build your house down there. Build it up here. And people who do what I've said have clearly built their house up here. Okay? So, a couple questions, because I think in terms of questions, right? Questions should initiate some form of movement and action, right? Uh, so the first question that I want us to wrestle with this week is, do I believe that God is in charge? Basically, you know, Jeremiah is talking about how he has authority. Do I believe that? Because let me be very honest. If you don't believe that, a lot of stuff we're talking about just really has next to no meaning for you. You can do a lot of the things we say, and you might find life from it. But at some point, you're going to have to wrestle with, like, do I believe that God is in charge? Right? Am I moving in that, in that way? And then the next question is, do my motivations match my actions? Does my inside match my outside? But where and how do we get our insides to match our outsides? This is how. Remember the physicality of this, right? Jesus sat down on a mountain. So what does he do when he's done preaching? He stands up and he walks down the mountain. Now, who should we have been thinking about? Moses. What happened when Moses walked down the mountain? What did he see? They built a golden calf. They were worshiping a hollow bunny. And he's heartbroken because he's just spent time with the God of all creation. When Jesus walks down the mountain, what does he see? That it isn't much different. That there are still golden calves everywhere. But what does he begin to do? The first thing we see him do in chapter 8 is we see him go to a leper. That is somebody whose skin is falling off right? Gross disease, super gross, and I'm sorry if that's too much for certain years, but it is what it is. That's, skin's falling off, which means he's not complete, right? He's incomplete, and Jesus heals him so that his skin doesn't do that anymore. Jesus fills him in, and he says to the leper, go to the temple. Don't tell him it was me. Give thanks to who? Moses. Now, did Moses heal lepers? Maybe, honestly, I don't remember. But man, what a strange thing to tell someone to do. Go give thanks to Moses. But if we could get the picture of the wadi up, I want us to, to keep this idea in mind. If the cliff is up, things above, what is Jesus doing as he walks down the mountain? It's like he's walking down into the wadi where people have built their houses on sand. And he's saying, not here. Don't build them here. But why should that motivate us? How does that fill us in? Because this is what the gospel is, the good news of the king. It is not only about the heaven we will go to when we die. Where is heaven? It's where God is. And Jesus has said in this story, I am God giving you the words to live by. And what am I doing? I'm walking down into the wadi. Heaven is here right now. Calvary, if you've heard nothing else from me today, heaven is here 
right now. We exist as a group of people who get together to demonstrate through our actions and through our insides that we believe heaven is here right now and you can grow healthily again. We are a hospital when you show up in emergencies, and you will, and we will do our best to help you. But we're also a wellness center. We will encourage you that your insides must change. We are not just a place to throw Band-Aids on. Our insides have to change, and they can, because the God of all creation came here. He's here. He's here. Would you all pray with me this morning? God, we thank you so much that you are here. And Lord, it's something that I've thought about a lot this week, this idea that the Lord's prayer is right in the middle of this sermon. This idea that, that they would be praying that your kingdom come. And Lord, I believe what we see in the sermon, not just in the words that help us to live our lives, but what we see in the text is this very real sense, Lord, that you have authority, that you are in control, and you have called us to live authentically so that our insides match our outsides, so that we can move in the ways that we need to move. Lord, I pray that Calvary is a place where people are encouraged to live authentically. Our insides match our outsides, but where do we get filled in? Lord, we get filled in from you, from tying ourselves together in the most beautiful twirl of spaghetti with the God of all creation who brings us to life and fills in our hollow bunny. We love you, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.